There is so much more to being a human being than just this. Like, obviously, you want to help people and, you know, grow as a clinician and all that kind of stuff. And you, you want to make a living for yourself and make money. But you're right in the sense that you can't handle other people if you can't handle yourself. Right. And that's kind of one of the biggest lessons I've learned through, you know, my, my trials and tribulations is that like, if I'm not in a good headspace, if I don't sleep, if I'm stressed, I'm not going to put my best foot forward that day. So that's how I have to check all those boxes off. That stuff comes with time and experience and making those mistakes, right? It's not like you just kind of come to these realizations. You kind of have to put yourself through it and then realize, okay, this is what I should have the next time. Implement that action right away. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. We have two missions. The first mission is to connect athletes with professionals who they can trust. And our second mission is to create a community and foster the education of those professionals and future professionals in the realm of athlete health and performance. This podcast is one way that we fulfill those missions. And if you're one of our six listeners who enjoy the show, do us a favor and give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform so that we can get the information out to as many people as possible. In fact, do that right now. Click pause, go to your podcast platform player and click that rating button. Give us a five-star rating and we can get this info out to a larger audience. Boom, duty fulfilled. To learn more about Clinical Athlete, head on over to the website, clinicalathlete.com and join the free Kalu community Facebook group where the Clinical Athlete and the Level Up Initiative communities have combined to form an amazing group with several different types of learning opportunities. You can join the Kalu Community Facebook group by clicking the link in the show notes. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, we are joined by co-hosts Jared Maynard and John Flagg. Jared is a clinical athlete provider and physiotherapist in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, an online powerlifting coach. John is a clinical athlete provider and certified athletic trainer and online powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach and the lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. On the show, we are very excited to welcome, welcome our guest, Brendan DeForge. Brendan has served as the Clinical Athlete Podcast intern for the last several months now, doing an amazing job, but he's also a badass clinician. He's a physiotherapist and clinical athlete provider in Alberta, Canada, loves working with athletes and trains hard himself. In fact, our very own John Flagg is his coach. We brought Brennan on the show to talk about his experiences leading up to what is now his first two years of clinical practice and what ultimately led him to the field, what school did well in preparing him for, what it was lacking, for example, why understanding loading and force profiles is so important when prescribing exercise, which is not necessarily something that's hit home in many programs. We discussed how clinical practice lined up with his expectations. Then we got into the topic of burnout. Brennan was extremely open and honest about some of the mental ups and downs he's gone through, and we're sure that many of you uh, will be able to relate. But we also talked with Brennan about how to deal with those periods and come out better for it. It was a great conversation. We hope you enjoy. Brennan DeForge, welcome to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Thank you guys for having me on. You always say it's uh, the pinnacle of 
that person's career. This is like legit the pinnacle of my career. I'm not going to lie to you. <sighs> well, see, then that's not as fun <laughs> if I say it. It's true. Uh, but we're, we're happy to have you, man. We're really excited. And, um, you know, as we're recording this, Brendan has been the podcast intern for the last three months or so, or maybe even three and a half months. And he's been crushing on the back end. So you, you might've noticed the last uh, three months or so, we've been a lot more consistent pumping out episodes every other, every week or so, every seven to 10 days, we've had a new episode. And that is 100% thanks to Brennan. And Brennan also happens to be a badass clinician and a clinical athlete provider and uh, just a really valuable member of the clinical athlete community. And John coaches him. So it's just like a no brainer to have him on the show and to talk about some, some awesome stuff. So, uh, Brennan, let's just start with your background. What's led you to PT, you know, maybe some twists and turns that you had along the way, what's led you to your current interests in the field. And then we can jump off from there. And obviously, apparently you're the pinnacle of your career, which is sitting before <laughs> John, Jared and I, and the other six listeners, maybe five now. Probably You've got much. one on the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Um, yeah, no, thank you guys. I really appreciate having me on. Obviously, it's it's a humbling experience. So I'm happy to be on with you guys. Um, I'm just over two years out of school. I graduated from the University of Alberta in 2018. So for all our American listeners, uh, Alberta, Canada. Um, so up here in Edmonton, still live here, right? Jared giving me a fist pump for all the Canadian people out there. Represent. Um, Represent, yeah. <laughs> Just came off my uh, my polar bear on my way to the podcast here. Um, but yeah, so I graduated about two and a half years ago. Um, have been practicing in the same clinic ever since. So I, I got really lucky out of school. Um, I kind of always knew that I wanted to work with athletes, um, high performers, that sort of thing. Uh, kind of landed a bit of a hybrid position as a um, kind of performance trainer, PT, SNC coach um, at a really, really dope clinic called The Bridge. Um, so we've got a couple clinics in our area. So I got really lucky that way, had some good networking and, and connections and stuff made before I uh, got out of school. Um, so yeah, in terms of what led me to being a PT, there was a lot of different things. I think a lot of people that end up working with athletes kind of have a very similar story in that, you know, you, I competed in, in a relatively high level of, um, athletics. I was a track and field athlete around 800 and 1500, uh, my first couple of years of university, um, dealt with my myriad of injuries. Um, so there was kind of that aspect in terms of me wanting to learn how to help my health, help myself, um, but also, you know, be able to help others and kind of share that same information. Um, I think it was 2013. I got into a really big bike accident. So I actually got hit by a car while I was riding my bike to work. I used to work as a assistant at a Cairo clinic in Edmonton. Um, so pretty nasty accident. I had concussion, you know, kind of your typical whiplash symptoms. Um, I had actually like kind of a, what I think now was probably a cervical crush injury in my neck because I had like myotomal weakness and um, sensation changes down my arm, all this kind of really gnarly stuff. Um, and I ended up seeing a PT that live in my area. Um, shout out to Mankeen. I think he's somewhere in BC now. He's a DJ who doesn't even practice anymore, but he was like this super badass clinician that um, kind of opened me up to, you know, what PT could be. I think I always kind of considered it as being um, very sports oriented because that's kind of always where my head was. Um, but here I was with this kind of sporty, but not sport related injury. He took me through all this neuroanatomy stuff and, um, you know, kind of explained pain to me, explained, you know, how I was going to get better and I did get better. Um, so it was kind of something that really struck me, um, as being like, okay, well, this is a lot more than just, um, working with an athletic population, you know, rubbing their hamstring with, with a Graston tool and then sending them on their way. Um, so again, that was kind of another step in that direction. 
I think one of the bigger things too, my, uh, my mother's actually a PT. So she works in an outpatient hospital setting in Edmonton um, with pediatrics. So she's like kind of more in the neurological pediatric side of things. She's kind of in a manager role now. But I remember being my undergrad and she came home and, and told me this story of um, uh, basically a father, son who had uh, moved to Canada. They were refugees from Syria. And the son had his, he was like six or seven. He had his leg blown off in a bombing and he lost his mother. And they had come to the Glen Rose um, basically to get a prosthetic and he was now walking again. And the thought like her, she teared up her, like his dad teared up. Like it was just this kind of emotional experience for them. Um, and again, that was kind of another eye opening thing where I was like, Oh, like physios can do that. Like we can work in that realm to be able how, to have that, that much of an impact. Like when you look at someone like that versus, you know, trying to get someone better from an Achilles tendonopathy, it's like, it's the same conversation, but it's not, there's levels to it. Um, so being able to have a bigger impact on, Something like that that we take for granted, I think, was something that really kind of drove me that direction as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a bit of a summary of it. I don't know if you guys have questions from there. Now that you're out, it's a couple of years out, is it what you thought it would be? I mean, you had those experiences that kind of changed your thought process on the profession, you know, even going into it. But now that you're actually out and doing it, how does that compare to what you thought it would be going into school? Yeah. So I honestly, it's, it's quite different. Um, and there's a lot of layers to that. So when I, before I started PT school, my undergrad, like I always knew that I was interested in the S and C side of things. Like I worked as a strength coach for, um, local rugby team or varsity rugby team. Um, and then I kind of worked as a, a personal trainer on the side as well at a kind of a private gym in our area. So I always had a little bit of that kind of exercise S and C background, again, knowing that I wanted to work with the athletes. Um, I didn't see the connection as much to PT. I didn't really understand kind of the, the spectrum from rehab to strength and conditioning as I do now. Um, so I think I kind of went into PT school, you know, knowing that stuff kind of had it in this box in my head. And then, you know, PT school was going to be this, um, you know, kind of aura of like manual therapy, needling, all this kind of stuff that I th was going to take me over the edge. Right. And I was going to be able to fix anyone and kind of be, you know, as, as everyone goes into PT school thinking kind of this, like this body mechanic per se. Right. And I have that in quotation marks in my head. Um, that's going to fix people and have these magic hands and do all that stuff. And then you start to kind of go through that process and, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, start to call BS on a few things in my head, but you kind of have to run with it because you're in school. And what do you know? You don't really know that much yet. Um, so I think, from that aspect, it was different. Um, you know, I still remember being in some of our manual classes and, you know, learning like a mobilization, like, okay, we're going to do an extension mob of C4 and C5 and they're doing it. And you're like, man, I just, I don't feel anything that's happening. And then the answer from the professor was always like, oh, like you'll, you'll feel it with experience. And then you start to me being me. Um, I always ask, okay, well, I, if I don't understand this, you know, there has to be another layer to it. Why don't I understand it? Um, so then it was reading literature and, and starting to dive in that way. Um, and they did a really good job of teaching us how to access those journal articles and all that kind of stuff. And then you start to see, okay, well, you know, maybe these effects of us moving this bone on this bone aren't exactly what we thought, you know, maybe that's not actually happening. Um, I remember one study that I read and it was referenced in, um, Greg Lehman's uh, reconciling biomechanics and, uh, pain science course, where he talks about basically like mobilizing the neck and, 
some, I can't remember the actual glide that they were doing or hypothetical glide, but all they found was that they were just kind of moving the skin around on the neck, right? So it's kind of stuff like that where I kind of started to not necessarily like question things, um, but just kind of take everything with a bit of a grain of salt um, going forward. So then I think, I mean, the other side of the, the school part was that I think I kind of wanted more of an exercise base. Like I, I think I already had a strong exercise base going into school, um, stronger than most people probably. Um, and I, I kind of hoped that that would be expanded upon, right. I kind of learned the ins and outs of exercise progression, regression, um, you know, strength for resistance profiles, like all that kind of stuff that, um, you know, we got a little bit of, cause I took a kinesiology degree when I was in my undergrad. So I got a little bit of that stuff, but um, you know, how does that apply to a population that's in pain or injured? And again, we didn't really get that per se. Um, you know, it was a very basic exercise stuff that I kind of already had learned from working and from, um, you know, kind of being in a, a kinesiology degree as well. Um, so I kind of, again, took that with a grain of salt, kind of knew that I had a bit more information on that topic. And then you just kind of continue doing your thing in school. And then once you're out, you know, you can kind of at least decide how you want to practice. Um, which was nice, right? I kind of had a bit more context, uh, had a great exercise background for my undergrad and, and my experiences. So I was kind of able to um, use what I found in school. I mean, it's kind of like that, that classic Bruce Lee quote where it's, you know, kind of destroy what's what's useless, kind of bring into play what's useful. And um, and then I can't remember the exact quote, but something about kind of, you know, bringing in what you can bring yourself. So bringing in your own experiences and stuff like that. So I think it did a pretty job, good job of doing that once I started practicing. Um, so yeah, I mean, to answer the question, I think it kind of went about it in a roundabout way. It's school was not what I envisioned it being. Um, obviously there's some layers to that and we can kind of talk about that more. Um, by no means was it useless. Like, I think there's a lot of really fantastic stuff that we learned in school, um, that kind of brought me to the place that I am today. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think my vision of me being this master manual therapist is, is not there anymore. <laughs> I think I'm more of a, a glorified strength coach than anything else at this point. <laughs> and with the exercise kind of being the thing that maybe was lacking, which, you know, for going into grad school, at least, I mean, John, you're an athletic trainer. I think athletic trainers, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys are more specialized in the athletic, in the athletic realm in general. Like, you know, you're going to kind of be working in certain specific settings, but with PTs, it's a little bit more general. There's more different, there's different settings. People, they tell us on day one, you know, we're going to train you to be a generalist. So you're going to get as much experience in the acute care as you'll get working with, you know, whoever. So um, with the, with the exercise piece of it, how did you, uh, you know, what are some, what are some things that were important to you that are important to you as a, as a clinician working with athletes that you didn't necessarily get in school, but that you do think is important for a clinician, just kind of general principles? Yeah. Um, I think to cycle back to like, I think one of the things that I've gotten better at and it's not necessarily neglected in school, but could have been presented in a better way was kind of the communication aspect. Um, I'm going through the level up mentorship right now and obviously kind of conversations with you guys, um, conversations with Zach and Steph. I mean, it's, that's kind of opened my eyes to the importance of that stuff. Um, you know, I think in school, they kind of put that into this box of, they mentioned the biopsychosocial model and how important it is. Um, but then again, it's just that in isolation and there's not a ton of combination into, well, how does that affect 
an athlete because it's still going to affect an athlete, right? If they slept three hours that night and, you know, they tear their Achilles the next day, like that's a conversation that probably needs to be had. Um, so again, it was kind of mentioned as this, this thing that existed, but then it wasn't really bled into how we were taught from like an orthopedic sports med perspective. Um, so even like kind of the idea of like pain science, again, that box of pain science was mentioned, but then it's like the way it was described to us was very much like chronic pain, fibromyalgia, all this CRPS, like kind of these pain based conditions without kind of bleeding it into the other aspects of, um, of rehab, even rehabbing athletes and stuff like that. Um, so I think like, that's a huge portion. Um, right now, like I'm working a lot with uh, the ACLR population, um, and seeing how much the psychological aspects impact that has really opened my eyes in that realm as well. Um, like obviously there's an RSI for a reason, um, for those that are familiar with that, right. And it's a way that we can, you know, kind of tease that stuff out, be able to communicate better with those athletes, um, and then be able to, you know, nail down those psychosocial factors right away. Right. And then if we need referral out, we can make that happen. If they have fear about going back onto the field for whatever reason, obviously like ACLR is a very complex process when you're out of sport for nine months to a year, it's a long time. COVID has made that even crazier for us. Like we've had athletes that, um, you know, got surgery last year in November, for example, and they're still waiting to get back on the field with their team. Not because they're not ready, just because there's, there's no opportunity to do it right now. Um, so I think the psychosocial considerations there of how to manage that have become really, really important to me. Um, so taking time to have conversations with those athletes about that stuff, checking with how they're doing, you know, how is everything else in their life going? Especially, you know, I do work with a lot of high school athletes, even college athletes. Like there's a lot of stuff that they're going through. Um, so I think that's a really big consideration um, that not everyone necessarily thinks of. Other stuff too, I mean, I think um, the more that I've kind of learned from you guys and, you know, other continuing ed based staff, like I, the exercise stuff, like I said, that we got in school is, is so basic, right? And it's kind of like this blanket fix for everyone, right? If you want to strengthen your rotator cuff, do banded external rotation, right? And it's kind of like this model that only works to a certain extent. Um, there's not a ton of discussion about how to scale those interventions per se. So for example, if we come again, shoulder, right? Um, how do you progress a banded external rotation for someone that's a thrower? Right. And they need to be in that layback position and be able to control that end range, um, you know, is, is going from external rotation and adduction with a yellow band to a red band to a blue band going to sufficiently load them? Probably not, you know, but maybe a kettlebell armbell, armbar, sorry, would kind of in that layback position when we're, you know, introducing thoracic rotation, we're introducing hip rotation, right? All that kind of stuff. Um, and obviously like you kind of get said, Quinn, like it's, they train us to be generalist. So that's not their fault. They have to prep us for, this ridiculous national exam that we have to do that we pay $3,000 for, um, <laughs> you know, so it's like, yeah, we better do well on that. Um, so there's obviously a lot of layers that come after. Um, so I think that's one big thing is definitely scaling interventions. Another example that I'll use with people is you get someone that has back pain in a, say a high bar squat, right. Is the intervention that's going to be best for them, like a McGill big three, you know, maybe early on, but eventually there has to be a scale bigger than that. So it might be, okay, let's get them front squatting and then, you know, doing a, a single leg RDL or a hip airplane or something, right? Because that's probably going to have a bit more carryover to their task, right? Um, so I hate the word functional and I think everyone kind of does at this point, but how do we make those tasks a bit more um, demanding and actually create tissue adaptation, I think is, is something that I've kind of come to terms with over the past, even over the past few months, kind of more so, 
Um, so that's another big thing. Um, I think other considerations too, I kind of alluded to that stuff earlier, but just understanding SNC principles, uh, for example, like, okay, how do we train for rate of force development? How do we train someone to build again, their post-op ACLR and they're two centimeters down on the quad? How do we build a quad, right? It's not just do quad exercise. It's okay, loaded across a variety of rep ranges, loaded across a, a resistance profile that, that varies, right? Um, you know, train close to failure, all that kind of stuff becomes important. We don't really get taught that in school. You know, it's like, okay, well, quad sets, single leg squat, agility ladder, back on the field in six months, right? And we know that that's not good enough, right? <laughs> so I think having that kind of stuff, um, the higher level stuff in school, I think is, it would be very important, right? And I get, it, it only applies to obviously a specific population, but I think, I think there's 60% of my class went into private practice. So my guess would be they're going to see an ACL or a tendinopathy at some point. Right. Um, so stuff like that becomes important. How do you train someone for, you know, absorbing force, right? Like, again, they're coming off some type of injury and, you know, someone's going straight into box jumps or drop jumps or something. And they haven't even taught them how to adequately absorb force through the lower extremities, you know, after a, whatever, some sort of lower extremity tendinopathy. Right. So there's a lot of layers to it. Um, even like understanding resistance profile of an exercise, right. If someone strains their hamstring, for example, um, okay, it's a grade two, they're a sprinter, right? You're not going to go to a seated hamstring curl day two because now we're loading it in the length and range, but we damn well better do something like that further down the line when they're closer to returning to their sport, right? So again, it's not just hamstring exercise, strength in the hamstring. It's, well, how are we loading this across a variety of rep ranges, across a variety of, um, you know, power outputs and, and velocities and lengths of that tissue, right? And again, that's something that I think is very, it's nuanced, um, I think the Instagram kind of world has almost made that worse because it's really easy to throw up on your Instagram page. Like, Hey, here's seven exercises for shoulder pain. Okay. Right. What's the context of it? What are we trying to create with that exercise? Why are you doing that? What like, and it's not even diagnosis, right? It's like, what kind of adaptation are we trying to create um, with those? So I think like stuff like that has almost made things worse <laughs> in a sense, because now every kid coming out of school has an Instagram page like me. Um, you mean to tell me that the seven hamstring exercises that I should be doing won't fix every hamstring issue ever? We talk. Oh, it depends, Jared. It depends. Son of a gun! <laughs> you pulled the "it depends" card. <laughs> just to, just to. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off. No, that's okay. Go ahead. <clears throat> just to chime in, man. I mean, you touch on a lot of things that echo my own experience coming out of school, and to give you know, the appropriate nod to, to the, the faculties and the schools that have to figure these things out. Like obviously timing and resources are limited and you have to prepare these or us prepare students for the national exam. <clears throat> and I agree. That's a whole other conversation, the exam itself, but, you know, you even brought up the point that with, with some of these things being much more applicable to the private practice or sport med realm, what I keep coming back to more and more as I practice longer is that at the end of the day, as rehab professionals, we've always got a person in front of us. And when you talked about communication, I really, that's probably the, the thing that I think is probably the most important to at least build out a bit more. And I've never worked as uh, school faculty. I don't know the struggles that, that exist for the people that have to run these programs. Um, but I think that 
if we're able to, as new grads, especially people coming out of, out of school, going into the clinic or the hospital or whatever the setting is, if we have some, maybe a better basic competency in terms of building rapport and figuring out how to get people to like us and trust us, because that matters to get people to do what we want them to do for their rehab. If we get better at active listening and motivational interviewing, and, and I'm not saying that we need to get super into the weeds with these things, but I think that I think that if we were equipped with a little bit more of that, it would probably help to, to boost the confidence level that, that a lot of us have coming out of school and into practice. Um, there's, I think, always going to be a decent bit of uncertainty and you know nervousness as we get into it for the first time. That doesn't <clears throat> always necessarily go away, but I think it changes over time. But if we're if we're working with people, I think we really have to be able to communicate at least half decently. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's something that it was mentioned in school. Like we had an evidence based practice course, and it was like, okay, here's how you do an MMI, and you know all these types of things. But again, the context, and I think it's it's part of that too. Is you kind of have to have that experience of seeing these things in the clinic to make that connection of like oh, this is important, right? Like when someone comes in and, you know, they're not getting better and they, like I said, like they slept like three hours over the weekend, they lost their job, all these kind of other factors come into play. Like you kind of have to know how to manage that. Um, but I'm a trial by fire kind of guy. So it's like how I'm going to learn how to manage it is like put me in that situation and let me, let me make a bunch of mistakes, right? And I think that's probably what I did my first few months is like I just messed up a bunch of times. And then when I realized I messed up, I'm... I would always kind of go home and I still do it where I, I mean, it's, you know, kind of one of the reasons why I probably lose sleep is I just kind of lay there and be like, okay, like how, how could I have done things better today? How could I have, what could I have said to that person to make that a little bit better? Um, and then you kind of start to realize, okay, well, maybe I could have done this and this and this and this. And then you start to try things and, and things work a little bit better. Um, but yeah, sometimes you kind of have to make those connections yourself, I guess, by just being thrown into those types of situations. I can attest to his trial by fire. I can definitely attest to his trial by fire demeanor. Um, so Jared mentioned empathy for the people sitting in front of us. I want to circle back just a little bit because you mentioned asking a question in class and kind of kind of taking stuff with a, with a grain of salt and having that healthy skepticism. I acutely remember, even as an AT, because our educational curriculum is built off the foundation of physical therapy curriculum. I acutely remember asking very similar questions and doing it so frequently that I was told to shut up, not by my teacher, but by other classmates, John, just shut up. And I found that also carried over into my professional life later on. Have you found kind of the same thing? I've heard this from new grads. I've heard it from students a lot that like there's this external pressure also from classmates to just like, just shut up, dude. Like stop asking these questions. And then you left school and you're asking even more questions. Like how does that, how did that impact your, your path through school? And now how does it impact you in clinic in these interwork relationships? That is a, that was a really good question. Um, yeah, so I think there's a few there's a few layers to that. Um, I think kind of when I came out, I had a really good group of people around me. Um, so I kind of graduated with a little crew where we all kind of had these similar 
similar thoughts, similar beliefs, um, which was helpful in a sense because it kind of validated what I was doing. One of my buddies um, was working at the clinic as a strength coach um, prior to, to me working there as a PT, and he had kind of been exposed to a lot of this stuff already. Um, some of the more forward-thinking practitioners that we have in our area work with us, right? Um, so that being said, it, it kind of, I felt like I was in this little bubble where, um, you know, everyone kind of seemed like they felt the same way as me. Uh, but then kind of when I got out and started talking to other practitioners and people maybe not necessarily in my circle, I kind of saw, started to see the differences. Um, I definitely had pushback um, from people against me in particular, kind of not necessarily being super vocal about stuff, but just, um, you know, obviously being on social media, um, I don't know, kind of going against the grain a little bit to some extent. I think there's still um, a lot of people that came out of my class that just kind of went with the status quo. You know, they went to your, um, Jared, you're probably familiar with like LifeMark, CBI, some of those bigger big box clinics that we have in Canada. And they're told to see, you know, 20 to 30 people a day on 10 minute slots. And, you know, basically have to hit these numbers of people that they need to see week to week um, in order to keep their job. And I just knew that I wasn't going to go down that road. Um, you know, I think there's kind of a lot of different paths, like out of school, it's like, you can kind of take the ignorance is bliss approach, which is what a lot of people took in terms of like, well, I'm just going to ignore, I know there's this research out there. I'm just going to like pretend that it's not there and just kind of keep practicing how it was taught in school. Um, there's kind of the people that are a little bit more like me where um, I think initially I was a bit more vocal too about like me just being frustrated and pissed off and um, you know, not necessarily to anyone in particular, but just kind of to the, the powers that be of physical therapy in Canada where I was like, why isn't this better? You know, why, are, why is our education system not better? Um, why are we still learning this stuff? And then I think even the past few months have been um, kind of a bit of a growth period where I'm like, okay, well, I can't change this stuff by myself. You know, I can't change what we're taught. Um, you know, I can't change what they're taught in the States. I can't change everyone's ideals, but you know, we can kind of change slowly, but surely, you know, kind of work to grow together with people, I think. So I've gotten a little bit less defensive and frustrated and a bit more like, Hey, you know, kind of here's some articles. Here's what the evidence says. Like, what do you guys think? Right. Um, and I think like obviously being a part of level up and clinical athlete has been huge in terms of fostering those types of discussions. Whereas like, Hey man, there's no crappy questions there's no wrong answers it's just like let's grow and let's learn together um so yeah i mean i think it's there's a lot of people that you know we're not necessarily going to change and you know that sucks um you know people this physios have been practicing for 20 plus years and they've gotten their their ortho levels and all those all those different things and you know they're they're not going to change how they practice um and i think it's it's tricky because then you have people coming out of school that are going to mentor under them and kind of follow those same ideals. Right. And again, it's not like it's wrong. It's just, we, we have more evidence to refute some of that stuff. Right. Um, so what I'm hoping is that, you know, again, that's why I gravitate towards you guys and level up is like, it's this kind of bigger network change, right. Where it's, well, how can we impact the most people? How can we impact students? How can we impact other clinicians? How can we impact academic institutions, which is kind of like the hardest thing in the world to do, but you start to see it, right. Like Scotty Butcher is, teaching an SNC course at U of S sick, right? I've already reached out to U of A um, a couple of times to see if they'd let me mentor and, and do a little bit of SNC work with them um, for their students. Right. So it's just little stuff like that. Even like Eric Lugoy um, down in Connecticut, right. Same kind of thing, right. Like every, you're starting to see this stuff happen. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of people that are resistant to that change because 
A, money is involved, and B, people just don't like change, right? And these types of changes are going to probably lead to people in the short term making less money until it becomes the status quo to practice better, right? And I think that's the tricky part, right? Is like, we can't change the system until everyone is on board, right? And that, that's going to take time. But I think the groups of people that are after it, you know, like you guys, and like I said, Level Up and Barbell Medicine, like all those crews are, are trying to do their best. And we're slowly starting to see that stuff kind of sift through um, the academic institutions, which is, which is really, really sick. I don't even know if I answered the question. I have this way about like going around questions and just rambling. And then I kind of forget what the actual question was. So that's all this podcast is, man. It's just rambling right? and stuff. So you're fitting it right in. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, these, these communities are important too. Cause it, so we don't get stuck in our silos. Cause as you, you get, you get older and you do this kind of the, you do your thing for long enough, you start to get jaded or comfortable. It's easy to kind of settle in if they're, if you're not being kind of challenged in a, in a healthy way. Um, so, you know, for me, I plan to stick around you guys as long as I can. So I can at least, uh, have some, have a sounding board, have a, have a community to bounce ideas off of, you know, get called out when it's needed, all that good stuff. Cause otherwise the, what do they say to create change is like one funeral at a time, something like that. The old guard has to die off. Yep. That's how they say it. <laughs> something like that. Something like that. You're basically saying we're the fountain of youth for you, Quinn. That's what I'm getting. To. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm the one with gray hairs in my beard. Okay. I have gray hairs. I have gray hairs too. Really? Yeah. I'm older. I'm younger than you too. Like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm saying us together versus the versus the old guard that Brennan was talking about. Okay. Professor Jeez. X shaved his head so we couldn't see any of his gray hairs. So, <laughs> yep, that's exactly why. Do you have any gray hairs, Brennan? Not yet. I mean, I'm only 26, so oh, I'd be okay. a little bit terrified if I had gray hairs already. But no, sometimes you'll get like a stray, just like in the side of your head. Yeah. Just like straggler like a <laughs> silver horse hair you're like whoa yeah i'll keep you posted you know you'll that. say it's blonde just to like oh yeah. no that's blonde it's from yeah. the sun yeah and you'll yeah. pull it out and you'll not look at it ever again until like oh man my wife will just look at all the gray hairs thanks and they're thicker and they grow back about three times as fast mm-hmm oh, um it's like that seinfeld episode where Jerry kept shaving his chest and it would grow back faster and darker and then he turned into a werewolf at the end. I don't know if you guys are Seinfeld fans, but... Uh, I'm, I'm actually surprised it's taken us this long to start making Seinfeld references. <laughs> well, this is also showing the entire audience how old we are. Yes. <laughs> I wrote a Seinfeld reference true. a couple days ago and everybody's like, no, I've never That's watched true. that one. Seinfeld. That's depressing. Brennan, you probably never heard of Seinfeld, have you? I have. I've heard of Seinfeld. <laughs> I used to watch it all the time. All right, all right. Nice. Good. Fair. Yeah, yeah. When he was nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. Consider this a little brain break from our great conversation with Brendan. Just so you don't forget, if you haven't already, go to the link in the show notes and join the Kalu Community Facebook group. It is free. Read the pinned announcement, introduce yourself, read the units that we've compiled for you with the Kalu mission and some Kalu starter pack materials, including must-listen-to podcasts and must-read papers. And now, back to the show. 
Well, what I was getting at before John rudely interrupted was that it's easy, it's it's difficult to continue to challenge yourself and to try to keep growing in the like kind of the same in the same field in the same realm. And like you said, especially with those companies doing the, like 20, 30 patients a day, 10 minute slots, that's crazy. I mean, you're throwing new grads into a, a situation, an environment where they're already like just trying to learn the craft, like learn the trade coming out of school. And you throw them into an environment like that where there's no way that there's learning that's occurring. Like they're not, they're not mastering their craft in an environment like that. They're just contributing to the bottom line of the company. And that's a really effective way for uh, a new grad to burn out real quick in a profession that they just started. So we wanted to talk to you about that as well. Um, just this concept of, of burnout. Um, and we can all kind of talk about our experiences with it as well, but let's start with you, Brendan, and talk about your experience with that at all. If, 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 if you've been in that realm, you know, at this point. Yeah. I mean, again, it, it has layers to it. So a bit of context to kind of, to me and like my personality is, um, second year I was in university, um, in the summer I, I was running on the track team at the time and I just kind of started losing a ton of weight really, really rapidly, a uh, ton of fatigue all the time, not really motivated to do a lot. Um, it's kind of the short term, went to the doctor. Um, they were concerned that I was, I had leukemia basically is what they had thought was happening. Um, so white blood, like all my blood cell counts were super duper low. Um, it was this crazy, terrifying time in my life because because I was out of control. And that's kind of the main thing that it kind of brings back to is like, ended up being fine. Like things kind of normalized. Um, I don't know why there was never a diagnosis that was brought to my attention. They just thought it was some sort of autoimmune thing that I developed, kind of like made its way through my body in six months. And then I started to put weight back on and all this kind of stuff. So it was a really life-changing experience in a sense that um, I felt it was the first time in my life I had felt out of control. Um, I'd always been super type A, been able to kind of handle everything, do really well in school, well in sports, and you know, everything was was happy and perfect. Um, and then I kind of had this thing that happened that I was like, I what did I do to deserve this? Right. You kind of ask start asking yourself all these questions. Um, so it kind of brought me into this place, kind of a crappy place where I was um, trying to control everything, right? A lot of people in that type of situation kind of take the opposite approach and say, like, well, if I can't control this, I can't control anything like F it. Right. And then I just kind of became a bit of a hypochondriac. Right. So it was super restrictive with what I was eating. Um, super just like I would train for like three plus hours. Cause it, you know, kind of gave me a little bit of freedom and sense of relief. And I thought I was doing good stuff for, for my, for my body. I would study for hours on end. Um, and I didn't really have a, a really big social circle. Um, because I was just so focused on trying to basically control my health to the best of my ability. And really I was obviously not doing that and wasn't doing a very good job of that at all. Um, so that's kind of like the context there. Um, part of that too, like is kind of right when I started to fizzle out of track, um, was kind of right at the beginning of that. I just fell in love with it. You know, I, I kind of got sick of running seven plus times a week, um, <laughs> at a semi-competitive level. And then I kind of had all this other stuff going on. And that was kind of like my first taste of like what burnout felt like, where I was like, get up at seven, man, I don't want to go for this run. And a month ago, it was like the most exciting part of my day was going to practice and, and running with, with my guys and, and 
our squad, right? Because, you know, you kind of, it's like a team sport like anything else. So you compete against each other and, you know, you kind of have fun doing that and challenge yourself every single day. But I kind of started to fall out of love with it, um, kept kind of pushing through it. And then again, kind of all this health stuff happened. And I said, okay, I'm done. I need to focus on myself. Um, so that's kind of what I did. I, I tried to, you know, put a lot of time and attention into figuring my own stuff out. Um, so, you know, I, mental health and, and everything like that obviously is a bit of a buzzword, but it was truly like really me trying to grow and become a, a better human being, um, not just working on my academics and my, um, you know, lifting and, and eating. It was like, okay, I just need to, I need to figure my, my headspace out. And I did. Um, so then I kind of got into PT school, um, you know, did pretty well. Again, I was a bit of an academic focused kid. So I never really got to the point where I was super, super burnt out in school. Um, I think I just, it came pretty easy to me and I had a really, really good group of people around me. Um, and then fast forward to when I started practicing, um, it, I don't know, it's really hard to define burnout. Obviously everyone's gonna have a little bit of a different sense of what that is. Um, I think for me out of the gate, like I, me and Jared were talking a little bit before everyone got on my first week of clinical practice, I had 27 assessments and it was like this whirlwind of activity and me trying to just figure out how to use our charting system while, you know, somehow treating these people that are paying me to get them better. Right. Um, and that's kind of how I, like I, like I said earlier, that's how I approach things like trial by fire, like just put me into it and I'll figure it out. And I figured it out. Um, I kind of became a bit of a yes man. So it was like, do you want to do this event? Yes. Do you want to work these extra hours? Yes. Right. Um, even if it was something I wasn't really stoked or passionate about, it was always, yes, like I'll do it. Um, part of it being obviously working for a new company, wanting to put my best foot forward. Um, you know, and again, I don't really regret doing that stuff when I did, because part of it too was like, I needed to find my niche. I didn't really know what my niche was. I knew I wanted to work with athletes. Um, but I didn't really know what kind of athletes, what capacity, what types of injuries, that sort of thing. So I kind of needed to go through that. Um, you know, I was working six days a week for my first year, pretty much, um, week after week. Um, again, kind of going to every event that I could on the weekends, like, I have no real background in cheerleading or gymnastics, but I remember I volunteered at a cheerleading and a gymnastics event back to back weekends, just cause I was trying to get people in the door and make these connections and stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean it again, kind of valuable experience in a sense that it, it kind of got me to where I am today. Um, and then I think kind of right before COVID, to be honest, it would have been like December last year. So about a year ago is when I really just started to hit the wall. Um, I remember I would work on Saturdays at one of our clinics and every single time I would get through my week, um, I had this one of my days during my week where I would do a split shift. So I'd work like six 30 in the morning till noon at one clinic. I'd drive to the other clinic in Sherwood park, which is about 30 minutes away and then do one to eight. So I had these super long days cause I just was trying to make money and pay off my student loans and learn as much as I could. And then I would get up the next morning for eight o'clock start at our clinic on Saturdays. And I just, kept kind of getting to that point every weekend where I was like, Oh my God, I don't want to go to the clinic. And I'm someone, I mean, you guys have had enough conversations with me now. I, I love what I do. Um, I love helping people. Um, I love the realm that I work in and I can't imagine doing anything else. So for me, that was like a bit of a like, Oh shit moment. Um, or I need to change something. Um, so I went on this big trip to Costa Rica with my girlfriend and it was like this fantastic, amazing thing. And then we get back and two days later, clinic shuts down because of COVID. Um, and it was almost a blessing in disguise because it kind of gave me this pause to say like, Hey, what do I really want? Who do I really want to work with? Um, you know, where do I see myself in kind of the next five to 10 years? 
I'd always kind of see myself as, you know, being in clinic ownership. And that was just kind of like my tunnel vision goal. But I didn't really, um, I never really thought about being, <laughs> I hate this word, an educator, right? Um, but being able to kind of help other people, other clinicians, that sort of thing. And then I started to realize that I, I had my first student um, a few months before and I was like, man, I really enjoyed that. I really liked teaching and, and talking about this kind of stuff um, with someone that, you know, has, is going through the same thing that I am or was going through the same thing that I am. Um, so yeah, like COVID kind of gave me this pause to say like, what do I really value? So I dropped two of my clinical days. I was working at two clinics. I streamlined and, and kind of just went to the one and I started only working four days a week. Um, and I felt way better because of it. Um, again, it's like, I, I needed to go through those experiences of, of working, you know, around the clock to figure out what I wanted to do. And, um, it's, it was super valuable because it gave me that pause to say like, okay, well, you know, who do I want to work with? And, you know, what other stuff do I value in my life too? I think, you know, kind of working as much as I was and putting as much emotional energy in it as I was too. I think part of it for me is that I get really tired from talking to people all day. I'm like, as you guys kind of alluded to earlier, I'm naturally an introvert. Like half the time I'd rather be at home reading a paper or reading a book. So when I'm just around the clock seeing patients, I felt like I wasn't getting better. I just felt like I was constantly just like, I don't know, like, like I was wakeboarding and I had fallen and I was just like holding on to this thing as it was just bumping through the water. Like it just, it just kind of felt like this never ending cycle. So I was like, I need to get, not that I need to get better necessarily, but I need to find outlets to grow and learn. Cause that is, you know, something that gives me, um, you know, kind of passion and I get excited about reading and, I'm learning new things and obviously being a better clinician is going to help my patients too. So it kind of gave me the freedom to do that. Um, you know, obviously get hooked up with you guys, um, kind of in the clinical athlete space, you know, do stuff like a level up, um, connect with people and just, you know, kind of grow myself in many different facets instead of just, you know, kind of padding my bank account and, you know, trying to, again, do the trial by fire thing for my entire career just wasn't going to work <laughs> for me. Um, and I just found like now my Tuesdays I have off right now and it's amazing because I, I get to do stuff like this. I get to read, um, I do some programming for some people online. So again, that stuff doesn't drain me as much. I, I can still, you know, get some financial aspect out of that. Um, but it doesn't give me that same, like feeling at the end of my day where I'm like, man, I'm exhausted. Like I actually get energy from doing that kind of stuff and doing this sort of thing and talking to you guys. So, um, yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of like where kind of burnout was for me. Um, obviously, there's a lot of layers to it kind of coming from a background where, I, I mean, I went, like I said, in my undergrad, like I I had terrifying panic attacks because of the stuff that I was going through. And um, again, I wouldn't trade any of it for the world because it kind of created who I am today. And I'm a very self-aware person because of it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely kind of bled into my clinical practice a little bit. So it's, it's kind of made me pause sometimes and reflect and, and be able to control my variable a little bit better that way. So let me just chime in first and thank you for your honesty and, and vulnerability, even offering to, to hop on and talk about this sort of thing. But I, I really firmly believe, you know, the reason why I was excited about having you on to talk about this is because it's a necessary thing. Um, and I truly believe that a lot of people are going to benefit from hearing your story. So Thank you for that first, man. Um, second, I think that, I mean, obviously you hit on a bunch of really important things there, 
And I don't think anybody's denying that it's tough being a new grad for a variety of reasons. I would imagine most people who go into PT or other rehab fields, probably pretty driven, probably hard workers tend to have to be to get into those programs in the first place. So I'd imagine that probably applies when they start up a new job. You know, they just pass their licensing exams and you want to do well at the new, the new company or hospital or clinic or whatever it is. And you have the external pressures too of probably have a buttload of student loans you got to pay off and you got these other things. And those, the, those pressures probably drive a lot of people to, to take on more than they otherwise would want to or even more than they can sustain. And I do think that depending on the circumstances, depending on the time, like there are periods of time where you probably have to put the pedal down and sprint. But I think that it's all too common. Um, I know it has been for, for me anyway. And I keep hearing the same sort of story for that sprint to just never end. And for that to take a toll, like a pretty heavy toll from or on people's overall sense of well-being. Or like you said, Brendan, the fact that you you love what you do, but you got to the point where you just you didn't want to go to the clinic anymore. I've been there and there are lots of mornings uh, for a variety of reasons. And uh, those, those instances were really part of what made me pause, kind of like you were talking about too, and, and made me think like, oh, hey, that's weird. I, I like this, but I don't right now. I wonder why. <clears throat> and again, I guess what I want to land on is that there aren't necessarily a lot of easy answers because there are these external forces and, and individual considerations. But I keep coming back to the phrase, we can't pour from an empty cup. So if we've got nothing and we're working with people who are depending on us to try to help them get better, and even beyond the clinic, like the other people in our lives whether boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, family members, friends, if we've got nothing for ourselves, uh, it makes it damn near impossible to show up the way we want to for them. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. And I think that's kind of where it started for me too, was again, that idea of like, well, I'm not improving. I didn't feel like I was improving as a clinician. And that's not just from like a, obviously not, not talking about manual skills and stuff. It's like, well, how can I communicate with these people better? Like, what's the evidence say about that? I just didn't feel like I had the, the headspace or the time to, to start to better myself in, in those aspects. And that's kind of where, yeah, it's like something's got to give eventually. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it's a story that I think a lot of people can probably relate to. I know I have friends and stuff that I've been through the same thing. Well, it's such a catch-22 in certain instances. You know, you, you got debt that you want to work to pay off. That's a mountain for most people. It's a lot. I mean, people are coming out with more student debt now than I ever imagined coming out of school. And then you get to a point where you're so burnt out. Now, I'll, I'll tell you exactly how I felt. I wanted to burn the damn building down. I, I'd show up to open the door and I was like, could I light a match and get away with this? Like, that's how, that's how bad I just loathed having to walk in the door. And then you start actually tracking, and I took this from Quinn, I start tracking my own KPIs of like, what's important? Where am I making errors with people? Where am I? And you start realizing the more burnt out you get, the more pissed off you walk in the door, the more errors you're making. And the more your mental health suffers. Because now you think, now you second guess your ability to be a good clinician. 
and I got all this debt still, and I might not even be good at this. Well, shit. There's our parental advisory, Quinn. So now what do I do? I got to commend you, bro, for taking the step to take care of your own mental health. We talk a lot about planning your ideal day, looking at what your life wants to look like, and doing that on your own and sitting back and saying, okay, you know what? No, I'm going to streamline. I'm going to make this work for me. Because ultimately, yeah, you could sit here and you can grind 90-hour work weeks. You can do that. You pay off your student debt that way. And I know this doesn't apply to everybody, the advice I'm about to give. But if you're able to give your all in the hours that you're actually working, you will be able to serve people better, which will reward you financially better in the long run. But you've got to be able to be present. You mentioned the guy you used to work with who inspired you to do this is a DJ now. I mean, he's turning tables. He's not even a PT anymore. I bet you he actually got that from some sick manual skills. But still, you look at that, like he inspired you. How burnt out was he actually in that moment that he's not even doing it anymore? And I see, I see that. I think there's like three of my entire class of 14 that are still actually clinically practicing. Many of them become teachers. They've left the field completely. They're doing other things. But not a whole lot of us are still doing this. Burnout is rampant. And it's exaggerated more by the pressure of debt, pressure of performance, like you're talking about. What was the, how many people did you say your, like, colleagues coming in, coming out of school had to work with in a day? So the worst story that I've heard, um, and I don't know the clinic, um, not that I would say it anyways, but um, they, she started at 33% commission and was seeing 30 people a day. 30 people a day. So you're a machine gun, basically. I mean, you're just just pumping out patients. And what, is that, what does that end up looking like from a quality of care perspective? But not just that, like what's her mental health look like? Imagine just doing notes for that. I mean, it's difficult. And I understand the pressures, the external pressures especially, but uh, again, I'm just going to commend you for doing your due diligence and taking care of your mental health and making that a priority because that is going to reward you tenfold down the line. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. And I think it's, it's something that, again, I've, I've, something that I've been through before. And that's kind of why I gave you guys that context of like, hey, this is kind of where this came from. And I'm self-aware enough now to kind of know like when I'm getting to that point where I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> um, Cause like I said, I've, I've kind of been there with, um, you know, pretty gnarly anxiety and panic attacks and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's terrifying when you're in that moment. Um, and it's, you know, it's scary in terms of not being able to get yourself out. Right. Um, and again, like more context to that, not, it wasn't in my year, but um, the year, just below me. So the class I graduated after they had a student commit suicide after an exam. And that was like this like moment of clarity for me where I was like, it's, you know, like there is so much more to being a human being than just this. Like, obviously you want to help people and, you know, grow as a clinician and all that kind of stuff. And you, you want to make a living for yourself and make money. Right. Um, but you're right in a sense that you can't handle other people if you can't handle yourself. Right. And that's kind of one of the biggest lessons I've learned through, you know, my, my trials and tribulations is that like, if I'm not in a good headspace, if I don't sleep, if I'm stressed, 
I'm not going to put my best foot forward that day. So I have, I have to check all those boxes off. Right. And that's, again, it's, that stuff comes with time and experience and making those mistakes. Right. It's not like you just kind of come to these realizations. You kind of have to put yourself through it and then realize, okay, this is what I should in the next time implement that action right away. There's probably people think listening to this who relate to you very much and are there some big rocks? I think you maybe even just mentioned one right there. Take, make, take care of yourself before you can take care of others kind of thing. Like you have to have your own ducks in a row. Would that be a, like a big rock that you would tell somebody if they're dealing with some of these things and, and what would be some other things to just begin the process of trying to dig out of that hole if, if somebody's in it? I think for me, one of the first things that I kind of had to come to terms with is that everyone talks about like balance in your career. And I just, I don't think it's a thing that is really realistic um, for me at least. Right. It's, you know, sometimes you kind of live and breathe this stuff. Right. It's not like when I get home from the clinic, I'm, you know, sitting there watching Netflix. It's like, Oh, I kind of want to read this paper or I want to read, you know, a book like I'm reading mindset right now, like Harold Weck and like all that kind of stuff kind of bleeds into clinical practice. Um, so I think like, Part of it is if you really want to be successful at something, um, you have to know yourself, but then you kind of have to also understand that it's not like everything needs to be balanced, right? Not like I'm coming home and doing yoga and then watching Netflix and falling asleep. Um, <laughs> so I think like I'm kind of okay with that now. Um, I think like one of the other things is, is that like kind of go down the route that you're passionate about as a big rock. It's really hard to you know, spend time and, and energy on something that you're not really super into, right? Like if I had to be in the clinic treating cervical radiculopathy all day, like I wouldn't be super stoked about it. But if my day was full of ACLs, I'd do that day every single day of the week, right? Um, so it's a lot easier to have that sense of imbalance per se when you're super passionate about what you're doing, right? So I think that's been another big thing for me is just kind of finding my niche, finding the people that I'm really um, excited about working with and then, you know, it kind of dives into my clinical ad stuff and what I'm reading. And then it kind of all, again, it kind of bleeds into itself because um, I'm, I'm learning about that and I'm excited about it, right? Um, I think the other thing that I'm like trying to do now, um, and it sounds super simple, but I'm just like every single year I'm, I'm going to plan a vacation. <laughs> and it's just like one to two weeks off where it's like I'm going wherever. I'm not bringing my laptop. I'm not responding to emails. I'm out. Um, I think for me, it's, I can tell when I'm starting to get to that point where I'm starting to feel burnt out. Um, so kind of planning that stuff ahead of time where I know I have that little reprieve that I can kind of say, okay, I'm good. Right. I just need this time, you know, something to look forward to. Um, and then again, it kind of leaves me refreshed coming back into the clinic. I did that like twice last year and it, again, it was a game changer. I mean, obviously COVID kind of threw a wrench in that, but it's a bit of a kind of gives you a chance to pivot. And, you know, think about things that you value the most and um, kind of go from there. Um, and, I, yeah, I think for me, too, it's just been finding external sources of, like, other things that I'm passionate about. Like, one of the reasons why I wanted to work with John is that, A, he's a badass powerlifter. Um, so are you, Jared. Both of you guys are unreal. But oh, I needed... Hold on. I got I to gotta interrupt yeah. you. Thank you for... for Give me the honor of <laughs> squishing me into that sentence. John, what did you hit? 855 squat PR like today or yesterday? Last night, yeah. Congrats, man. It was yeah. difficult. I'm, I'm just 
I'm just happy to, to live in your bearded shadow. Yeah, it like immediately feels like you're going to die as soon as you unrack it. Crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's like, I, I've always loved training, but I never have been able to streamline it in a way that I felt like it was um, productive, like I was working towards a goal. It was a training was just training. It was just like my little mental break. Um, but it never really felt like I was going anywhere. So I was like, okay, I need to, to go somewhere with this and have a goal in mind. Um, and it's become a bit of an outlet for me where now I like, I look forward every day to those sessions. Um, cause I have someone giving me feedback and I have, you know, I have these, these goals that I want to hit. Um, and obviously it's a little bit related to what I do in the clinic, but it's not the same cause it's, it's for me, right. It's kind of for my own well-being. Um, so I think that's another big thing too, is like <laughs> as simple as it sounds, like find a hobby, find other goals, right? Like it can't all just be like, Hey, I want to own my own practice in five years. I want to see X number of patients a week. I want to do this continuing ed course, that continuing ed course, like have other stuff. And it might be related to clinical practice, but, um, you know, like compete in some other sport, right. Or, you know, have a hobby that you're, you're super interested in. And then you kind of have that little reprieve day to day, um, that kind of gets, it gets me out of my own head for a period of time. Um, and I've found that that's been super valuable for me. So yeah, those would be the, the main things I would say. Make sure to plan date nights too, bro. Got fair to. Enough. Yeah, fair enough. It's been a game changer for my <laughs> wife and I. It's it's huge. It's like a mini vacation. You got to got to plan date nights out too. They're <laughs> they help out quite a bit. No kids allowed. No, we get a babysitter. Hey, can you imagine um, Max just screaming at us in the middle of a nice dinner. She uh, she probably thought you were being too loud, like she did today. She was scolding us for literally 20 minutes. Yeah. You kid? The two-year-old. She kept opening the door to the office oh. yelling loud. Shh. Okay. What was she doing? That you were disturbing. Know. She was playing with her sister out in the kitchen. And apparently we were being too loud repeatedly. Then she came in in an oversized pair of heels. This is It's always an adventure with two-year-olds. <laughs> I was going to say a two-year-old complaining about you being loud. That's a, it is it's really entertaining, man. That was, I think that's so useful. Everything you said there, Brennan. I mean, I, it's hard when you, when you, sometimes it's hard when you do enjoy what you do so much because you don't want to stop. Like you, you feel like, all right, taking time off. I'm, this is time that I could be spending like doing more. But then when you, what the real, the reality is that your the quality of what you do starts to taper off and you don't even realize it until you realize it until you look back, you're like, Holy crap. Like what, like what John said, you know, your just quality of, of anything that you're doing um, starts to, to go down. And so it's like you, you're doing more from a, a, a straight productivity and volume standpoint, but the impact of your work is, is not nearly as high. And so I think it's just so valuable what you said there is taking time to do other things um, that you enjoy. And also just like what that does is it allows you to come back to the, to your thing. And it's now fresh again. Like you've, it re-energizes you, it resensitizes you to want to push forward, to want to sprint forward um, instead of just like what you said, holding on to the wakeboard and just trying not to, you know, get bumped off. Um, so it's so valuable for everyone. 
I think those are those are huge. Um, anything else on that front from from anybody here? Yeah, I think the only other thing I was gonna say is like I've something recently that I started doing is just like journaling a little bit too. Super simple, right? Just kind of reflecting on like for me, it's three good things, three bit three bad things. Like, what did I do well? What did I not do well today? And that's not even just clinical stuff. It's like uh, yesterday it was I didn't eat enough food. <laughs> Sorry, John. Um, <laughs> you know I didn't. He wouldn't understand. He wouldn't understand. Well, he knows I'm trying to I'm trying to put on weight right now, so yeah. I didn't meal prep well enough. So stuff like that, where it's just like, um, you know, it's something that I can kind of point towards. Hey, I'm grateful for this, this, and this. I can work on this, this, and this. Um, so I think that's something that's super valuable for people to just kind of reflect, right? Take that time to be self-aware and, um, you know, it, it's going to kind of help you in terms of giving you confidence to see what you're doing well, then also start to hash out those things that you could do better. You know, uh, the solution for the days that you under eat, you should, do you have a blender? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We use it. Whole milk, some Almond, whatever you can put in there, just make yourself like a 5,000 calorie shake and just chug it. And then it's like, oh, I didn't under eat today. And then go lay down. I was so ready for a Noosa yogurt plug. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. Anything that's calorie dense. Like I've, I've thrown in Noosa's into the, that's a perfect idea. That's delicious. There you go. Jake Manley, you, know, you and your Chobani can suck it, according to Quinn. Thank you, guys. Uh, yeah, man. I have the under eating gene too. So I've had to create a lot of tricks of the trade. Um, so something for me, I started playing a little bit of piano, started learning that. And what I find that it does is like, you kind of got to get, you got to get good enough at it to where you can actually play a little bit to get the benefit of what I'm talking about. But once you, once you can play like a little bit, you find yourself kind of getting lost in it. And I haven't found myself getting lost in anything that was not work related in a long time. And that was a, it was like, whoa, like it was like an odd feeling, you know, time is not a thing anymore, but like that happens, but it's usually when I'm like working on a presentation or like, it's, it's like work related. It's and but it's so different or like fishing, which I started to get back into again, but like, find like, like Brennan said, find that thing um, and try to make it removed from what you do. Cause I think, people do yeah i found my thing and it's like basically just more of what you do that's not actually that different um so i you know i just like that piece of advice trying to trying to live it currently community challenge to make a meme of quinn going straight ray charles on a piece i'm trying to cannot wait i'm trying to get good enough to where elton john just can't say no to a duet make it happen buddy sir elton john i'm trying I'm trying. Sir Elton John. John Legend, maybe. Alicia Keys. Any of those. Billy Supergroup. You're going top tier. Quinn, hey, well, like shooting for the moon. Come on now. He's not even baby stepping it. He's just like, no, nah, I want to play piano with the greatest. Let's go. No, no half measures here. It's not what yeah. Quinn does. Half measure. Was that a pun? I, it was an unintentional pun. Well done. Thank you. Figure it out. <laughs> Brennan, this was awesome, man. Um, it's super, super helpful. I think because I think most of our listeners are probably in that like five years or less out of school and can really relate to what you're 
saying. And your clinic is awesome. If you got a chance to see Brendan's uh, Takeover Tuesday on the Clinical Athlete Stories, dude, that place is sick. It's, yeah, it's ridiculous. I got very lucky. Very grateful for, shout out to Teresa and Doug Gilroy. They're kind of our, our management ownership group and they're fantastic people that I work with. So we're, we're trying to change the game up here in Alberta. Man, do it. Push those, push those commission-based... Co- that, there's not a lot of things that kind of get me like boil my blood right off just hearing about it, but a commissioned based healthcare provider. Imagine that immediately you now become biased to seeing more patients for your commission than you, than you do about getting like what's best for them. And I don't care who you are like that, that pay structure immediately biases the clinician. Um, Run away from that. If, if you can, as a new grad, I know like times are tough now. So it's like, well, I got to get a job in that case. But if you have any other option, that is a, a red flag of red flags for me, at least. So good on you for going the other way and also trying to create, you know, something that can push that out. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. John, Jared. Good. J- J- John's like, man, I squatted 850. I'm just trying not to brag and or just fall asleep. I, I, that was, I mean, that was last night. I felt I had well rested. It's been a great day so far. So we just keep bringing that back up, though. I mean, I, I could talk. <laughs> thousands on your mind, I'm sure, right? You don't get to 850 and not think, like, is a thousand doable? Yeah, it's that, like, first up's 900. And then, right. and then yeah. we'll, we'll start like thinking about crazy stuff. Nine hundred is obviously cool, but you don't like it's not nine hundred; it's a thousand. That's that you, that you think about. <laughs> I'm just getting so trolled here. This is so terrible. I might have to get one of those big diaper suits to do that, though. You know, the ones that like stand up on their own. Hey, whatever. It's a thousand pounds. A thousand pounds on your back. Just pull pulling it out of the rack is a feat of strength. That. Very At few that humans. point, I don't think I'm walking it out. I'm not going to pull a ray. I oh, think that's I, true. I'm, okay. Yeah, I think I'm going to monolift that out. It's true. <laughs> Fine. Smart, man. <laughs> I mean, yoke walk with a thousand. Just walk it forward, like the Chinese weightlifters do out of there. How, uh, how do I put it back, Quinn? No, it's like <laughs> a different. No, you have a. It's in the rack. So, you, have you seen the, the Chinese weightlifting team? That the racks are like they have divots. The bar, like, kind of like sits in a divot. And so they can walk it forward. They can just like pull it out, walk it forward, walk it straight back. Oh. It's not, well, I'll, I'll have, I'll, I'll order some and that'll be what you walk out a thousand pounds with. Thanks bud. Yeah. This is the team support I'm looking for. You just need to be able to say that I walked it out. It's monolith stuff, man. I don't know. <laughs> See, Quinn just pushing internet powerlifting to another level. What a purist. I respect it. <laughs> But did he walk it out, bro? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Does he even lift? <laughs> Brennan, thanks, man. You're welcome, guys. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So, John, where can people connect with you? Me? Oh, we're going out of order here. Uh <laughs> The best place for me is on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. You can send me a message uh, on there anytime. It's at John.RebuildStronger. Jared? 
Instagram is also the place to be, jared.unbreakablestrength, or shoot me an email at jared at clinicalathlete.com. Brennan, where can people connect with you? Uh, Instagram is probably the easiest. I'm uh, at return to performance. Two is a two. <laughs> It'll be in the show notes. Um, or you can send me an email at uh, brendan at thebridge.fit. We know it'll be in the show notes because Brennan writes the show notes. Do write the show notes. It will be in the show notes. If he says it, it's going to be there. Um, Well, thanks again, man. This was really awesome. Thanks again for opening up. Um, Open and honest conversations are are always the best ones and they're always the most helpful. And I think that there's going to be a lot of people listening to this uh, that it's going to be really helpful for. So thank you for coming on. It was awesome. Thank you, guys. John, Jared, thank you as always. It was a pleasure. Appreciate your time, man, and your openness, Brendan. I think people are going to get a lot of value out of it. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, we'll say goodbye to our five listeners. And Brendan will, uh, has been taken up a level. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. See you guys. Thank you to Brendan for having such a great, candid conversation with us. You can check out the show notes for ways to connect with Brendan and all of our uh, Clinical Athlete podcast hosts. And of course, thank you to my homies, speaking of which, Jared Maynard and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the Clinical Athlete community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And one more time, Go to the link in the show notes, join the Calu Community Facebook group, read the pinned announcement, introduce yourself, read the units that we've compiled for you with the Calu mission and some Calu-approved brain gain materials, and let's go. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon.